You need a new set of glasses, somebody might say. Somebody else might say, I'm more spiritual than you are. Somebody else might say, I've had a deeper revelation on this than you have. Somebody else might say, the church world in our day, we need to go off the map. We need to get off the rail, go off the rail to meet with God, to do what God's wanting to do in this day. I'll give you two quotes from, from Bill Johnson. God is bigger than His book. I just want to let these, some of these sink in for a second. God is bigger than His book. Another quote by him. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Now, even though the pastor of a local church has authority, pastor does have a local, I mean, the local church does have biblical authority. He does not have ultimate authority. Authority. I'll say it again. Even though a pastor of a church does have biblical authority, there is an authority there given by God. He does not have ultimate authority. God's Word has ultimate authority. And church members have, listen to this, church members have the right and the obligation to say we reject what you're saying because it contradicts God's Word. Pastors do have authority. They have biblical authority that God's put them in whatever local church. Maybe head of a group of churches like uh, Paul was an apostle and so forth. But the pastor does not have, and no man has ultimate authority. God's Word has ultimate authority. And the believers and the members of that church have the responsibility and the obligation and the right to say, we reject what you're saying because it contradicts God's Word. I want you to turn with me and read in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. We're doing a series on deception versus truth, discerning error, standing strong against error, how we're, how we're equipped to stand against it. We're, we're bringing this series to an end. We'll probably have uh, one more week in this after today. But I want us to read this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. We'll read through verse 10. Paul said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another gospel, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have, we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. What a mouthful, amen? What a statement he's making here. Now in this particular case, when Paul was writing by the Holy Ghost to the church of Galatia, the particular perversion or particular error in his day and in this church was the false gospel of the Judaizers. There was a blend or a mixture of Christ and the law. Okay? Salvation by faith and grace and Christ 
and blending that with the keeping of the law for salvation and for righteousness. And there is no such blend. Christ is our righteousness. Okay? We receive that by faith in Jesus. This is what he was dealing with in this church at this time. But can I tell you, and you know it, there are countless perversions of God's Word. There are countless perversions of right sound doctrine. There are other Christs, other Gospels, other spirits than the Spirit of God. Little children, it is the last time. And as you know, you have heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now, are there many Antichrists whereby we know it is the last time? So we've used this scripture several times in, in this series. That's 1 John 2.18. There are many. There's no end to the, 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 the workings of Antichrist. There will be an end to it one day. But there's no limit, it seems like, to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. I want to give you another quote by Bill Johnson. Again, I'm not picking on Bill Johnson. He's a pastor of, of, of Ethel Church in Redding, California. Well known. The, the group Jesus Culture uh, is a wing or out of that church and uh, a prominent part in that church. Uh, I want to give a quote from a book that he wrote. And I want you to just listen to every word. I'm going to read it twice, okay? What are we talking about? We're talking about discerning error, truth and error, end times deceptions. How are we protected from that? Let's so say there's no limit to them. I'm going to read one quote. And I want you, as I'm reading it, to start combating it. Or maybe you agree with it. Let's listen to it. Bill Johnson wrote this book entitled When Heaven Invades Earth. Here's the quote. Jesus completely laid aside his divinity and ceased to be God when he came to the earth. He was only a man in a right relationship with God. I'll read it again. Jesus completely laid aside his divinity and ceased to be God when he came to, to earth. He was only a man in a right relationship with God. Now, we hear a statement like that. In the name of the Lord, in a pulpit, in a church, not in Islam, not in Jehovah's Witness, not in Hinduism, okay? In a quote Christian church by a Christian pastor, and we hear this statement. What was going on in your mind and in your heart when you heard that? What was taking place? Because I want to tell you what was taking place when I heard it. When it says he was only a man in right relationship with God. I thought to myself, I didn't know where to begin. Lots of men and women have been in right relationship with God. But they weren't God. They weren't Jesus. They weren't the Christ. Abraham was in a right relationship with God by faith. The Apostle Paul was in a right relationship with God by grace through faith. You and I sitting here today, if we're born again, we're in a right relationship with God by faith. We were enemies, but now we've been reconciled by the blood of His cross. When Jesus was doing miracles and more than one occasion, but the Pharisees picked up stones to stone Him. And He says, for which of my good works are you going to stone me? They said, for good work, we're not going to stone you, but you being a man, make yourself to be God. Well, the statement here says that he completely laid aside his divinity and ceased to be God when he came to the earth. No, 
He didn't cease to be God. He was God. He was sinless. And the Bible says, Though we are an angel from heaven, preaching any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I again now unto you. And he reiterates it again. Anytime you see the Bible doubling down on something or repeating something right away, like verily, verily, it's all important. But when Jesus says verily, verily, and when Paul says, as I said, I'm saying again right now, they want us to get it. The Lord wants us to get it. Okay? The Word of God wants us to get it. And so I begin going through this by, by the grace of God and the help of the Lord going through just in my mind, in my heart, and jotting down things. Note, Jesus was sinless. I'm thinking about His statement that He made. Ceased to be God. Completely laid aside His divinity and ceased to be God when He came to the earth. and was only a man in a right relationship with God. I thought, no, He's sinless. He was not of Adam's race. He was not of Adam's race. He was born of a virgin. He was the Son of God. Like we just read it, sang about. He was God incarnate. He was not of this world. He said, I'm not of this world. But he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now I am is a name of God. But it also speaks to his eternal being. He didn't say, as Abraham was, I'm going to be someday. And you can be that way too. He says, as Abraham was, I am. Claiming to be God. In the flesh. We need to know our Bibles. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Jesus said this, and I'm just going to read some. This is from John 14. I'm going to read it for time's sake. 7 through 11. If you had known me, he was talking to Philip, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. John 14, I mean John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I hope when, I, when we were read that statement from Bill Johnson that these Scriptures, even if you didn't know exactly where they were, I'm telling you where they are, and we can study, and y'all probably thought of 20 other Scriptures that I haven't mentioned. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So he's saying Jesus ceased to be God and was only a man in right relationship with God. John 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. It doesn't say He ceased to be God. It says the eternal Word became flesh. It doesn't say He ceased to be God. It is the Word became flesh. Amen? Jesus became a man, but He never ceased to be God. He laid aside, I guess you would say, an amount and I had to phrase it, of His glory. You know what? Because He prayed to His Father, Lord, restore me that glory that I had before. And, and it was before He went to the cross, okay? But He never ceased to be God. He, he laid it down for the suffering to go to the cross. He laid aside some of His glory 
and became a man, but he never ceased to be God. God was, the Bible says, manifest in the flesh. Who was? God was manifest in the flesh. Not a man in right standing with a relationship with God, but God was manifest in the flesh. That's an example, y'all, of testing the spirits by the word of God or trying the spirits. I'll just add to this a little bit more because it's important that we defend the faith and that we defend our Lord and Savior in His Word. Not that He needs us to defend Him, but there was another occasion where the, you know where, the, where those, that lame man was let down through the roof, right? They broke up the tile roof and they let the man down because there was such a crowd. And Jesus sees him and He's seeing their faith and He says, the first thing He says is, get up and walk, you're healed. No, it's not what He said. The first thing He says is, Son, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the Pharisees within themselves, not even out loud, grumbled and were furious and said, who can forgive sins but God? They knew that. They got that part right. But Jesus forgave sins, right? Then He said, rise, take up your bed and walk. He says, but you, that you might know that the Son of God, the Son of Man, has power to forgive sins on earth and to heal. And He was God in the flesh. And who can receive worship but God? Who can rightly receive worship but the Lord? Nobody. But Jesus received worship from men. Men fell at His feet and worshipped Him. There were those when He got to the island with the, the, the man that lived in the, the tombstones. It was so filled with a legion of demons. When He saw Jesus, He cried out and fell down before Him with a loud voice said, What have I to do with Thee, Jesus, Thou Son of God Most High? I beseech thee, torment me not. He's not talking to a man in right relationship with God. He felt the feet of God in the flesh and, and worshipped Him. When We use this scripture a lot lately, but when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And God, Jesus commends him on that. Blessed art thou, right? Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And on that profession of faith of who I am, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a perfect example of testing the spirits by the Word of God. You know that we could, you could grab out of a grab bag and find a false doctrine, a statement, a book, okay, a sermon, and then dissect it like we're doing. You know what? We need to do that. We don't need to grab out of grab bags, but we need to, to deal with the things that are brought into our lives that are false. And we need to deal with them biblically. And it's not personal. I've never met this Bill Johnson. I, I, I pray that he repents. I pray that he comes to see the error of his way. You understand what I'm saying? But I pray the error stops. God will judge it sooner or later. It will be judged because that's not speaking rightly of Christ. That's not speaking rightly of Christ. We are to believe the record in 1 John 5 uh, that God gave of His Son. And the record that God gave of His Son starts in Genesis. And it finishes in Revelation as the Alpha and Omega. The soon and coming King. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the Lamb of God that died and rose again. That's His record of His Son. 
the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Not a man only in right relationship with God. He did become a man, but he never ceased to be God. Son of God and Son of Man, and both were His. And I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And so, He's he's the Lord. Now, we are supposed to uh, know God's Word, hold to God's Word, rely upon God's Word, use God's Word as our standard, right? We've talked about this last week. It is our unchanging, all-sufficient, authoritative standard. The Word of God. And what do I mean by authoritative? That means that you have the authority by God's Word. His Word has the authority and we have the authority. There is a priesthood of believers to take that Word, study it, know it. I'm talking about rightly divided. It's again, not cherry-picking Scriptures and building some kind of other religion or doctrine out of the Bible by using the first half of this verse and the last half of that verse. Okay? Uh, but I'm talking about the rightly divided Word of God is led by the Holy Spirit. We have the authority because God's Word has the authority to judge and to judge by the Word of God. We don't have to be haughty. We don't have to be arrogant. We don't have to get a microphone and blast it. But we are to judge for your own sake, for those sitting next to you's sake, for your children's sake, for a church body out there that's in confusion for lost people that don't know the Lord to defend that testimony and record of Christ and the authority and the, the standard by which we do that is the living Word of God. It is authoritative. So in other words, when you put a, the Scripture on it, rightly divide it, and, and here's a statement by a, a pastor or whoever that's false, and here's the Word of God, you have the authority in that Word of God whether people agree with you at the end of the day or not. That word has the authority. It stands. It's true. It's truth. And that's what we rely upon. If everybody agrees with you and comes out of some kind of deception or nobody agrees with you and they want to cling to the false, it still has the authority. And you and I, from the least of the saints, have the authority in Christ to stand upon His Word. I mean no disrespect, but we reject what you're saying because it contradicts the Word of God. Not trying to take over your church, not trying to do this. I'm not I'm telling you, I reject what you're saying and what you're teaching was it contradicts the rightly divided word of truth. And God's word is my standard. Amen? Amen. What about Jesus? The Bible says of Jesus that uh, seven hundred and fifty years before he came, that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, his name shall be called. That's Jesus said his first coming. Child is born. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Right? And so He's God in the flesh. We use the Word of God as our unchanging, authoritative, all-sufficient standard to try the spirits whether they be of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Whereby we know it's the last times. Right? We are to use God's standard, His Word, to judge, to discern truth from error, the Spirit of truth from the Spirit of Antichrist, and the Holy Ghost who lives inside of a born-again person. The youngest believer to the oldest saint. The Holy Ghost, if we're saved, we're saved. We're born of the Spirit. And the Holy Ghost lives inside of us. But the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of truth. He guides us into all truth. I know I'm repetitive. I understand that. This is how God's having me to bring this uh, series for some reason. And, and we don't have time to read it, but jot down John 16, 13, and 14. It talks about 
Jesus, being, uh, the Holy Ghost being that spirit of truth who guides us into all truth. There are other similar verses in John 14 and 15 as well, but that's such a clear one right there. Now listen to this. Here's what we're going to talk about today. Once we have, or the believer has done this. In other words, once we have taken God's word as our authority, we've gone to it, maybe we already know it in our hearts, or we go to the Bible, and we use God's word to judge what has been spoken. What is what we read, what we heard in that sermon. Once we have done that to judge, is it of God or is it not of God? Is that prophet of God? Is that prophecy of God? Uh, does, Does the believer have any responsibility beyond that? In other words, is there anything else that God would tell us to do after that? Okay, I heard this on TV. He preached something false. I knew the scriptures. I knew it was false. False. I turned it off. Do we, in in any circumstance, let's put it that way, because it's not every circumstance, but in any circumstance, do we, as believers, once having judged a statement or a prophet or a prophecy or a teaching or a teaching or a doctrine by the Word of God, rightly divided, do does the believer have any other obligation or responsibility beyond that? in regards to this matter. I want you to turn with me to uh, look at two passages. Start in 2 John. We're going to read verses 7 through 11. 2 John 7 through 11. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Sounds kind of similar to that statement we read a little while ago. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your home, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. So there is an admonition or instruction given there. I've often thought, okay, that's the Mormon that comes knocking at our door, the Jehovah's Witness. And but but I would believe it would be anything that's false. You can put whatever label on it. They're bringing some doctrine. And again, I'm not just talking about something that, again, this church thinks we should only do hymns. And this church like some contemporary music. I'm not talking about that. Okay? We're talking about something that's false. Like that statement about my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that was made, that we quoted. Alright, now here's our main text. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 16. This is all we're going to spend the rest of this time today talking about this passage. What it means, what it doesn't mean, how we're to actually practice this. We're going to break it down. Romans 16, I want you to read verses 17 and 18. Romans 16, 17 and 18. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good works and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Deception. He's saying, how do they do it? By fair words, fair speeches, good words, and fair speeches. They deceive the hearts of the simple. But we're not to be simple. We're not to be simple. We're to be wise. 
and understand. All through the Bible, Old and New Testament, God, understand the times in which we live. Uh, it says in, in Ephesians 5 that we're redeeming the time. That we know the times in which we live. Uh, Peter talks about the same thing, I think, in 2 Peter. He's talking about understanding. We understand from the Word of God, the living Word, and by the living Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So I want to break down a few words here and then we'll talk about it, okay? So this is a study slash sermon. You can call it what you want. But in, when he says here, contrary, beseech you, brethren, verse 17, Martha, which caused offenses, divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine. All right, the, the con word contrary means opposed to, against. Opposed to, comma, against. It also means, and those are obvious, contrary to South Town doctrine, right? I believe in millions of gods. Not, I'm a Christian, but I believe in millions of gods. I don't believe in a trinity. Well, that's contrary to sound doctrine, okay? But also, it's in, it's in opposition to it. But another definition of this word contrary means more than or past. And I did not know that until I started studying this. You know what he's saying? Somebody carries it too far. Have you ever heard an exaggeration of the gospel? Not the gospel, but exaggeration of the love of God. We say, well, how can you exaggerate the love of God? You can exaggerate it, not by making too much of it. You can exaggerate it by making it something it's not. In other words, God's love just because He loves the whole world, everybody's going to be good, good with God. I mean, that's what they, they would say those words, but basically that's what they mean. Or the grace of God. They make the grace of God into something that the Bible doesn't make the grace of God. Is it wonderful? Is it beyond our comprehension? Is it too good for words? Yes, just like the love of God. But can you, can you make it something that the Bible says it's not? Yes, you can. And so not only are these that we're to avoid, they're contrary or opposed to sound doctrine, biblical doctrine. They go beyond in some cases. That's one of the definitions. To go uh, more than are past the sound doctrine. They have the whole Bible here, but they want to go beyond it. And everybody else that's in the Christian world doesn't have that. And this is beyond it. I don't want anything beyond these 66 books right here and the God that it introduces me to and teaches me of. You understand what the future that God says that I have in this book. But people go, in the name of Christ, go beyond it. People say, that's the ones having itching ears, right? And they heap to themselves, teachers having itching ears, and they turn their ears from the truth. Now they'll be turned into a fable or to a lie, and they'll follow after that. Wow. Still talking about love and grace and salvation in Jesus, but they've made, made it something beyond. That it's not. But that He's not. And so, this, this important, contrary to what? We're to mark and avoid those that, that cause these offenses contrary to what? Contrary to my personality? No. Contrary to my tastes and my opinions? I just don't like this guy. He's got a raspy voice, you know. I don't like that guy. Or I don't like, you know, uh, he, ta he talks five minutes too long. I look at my watch every sermon. He's five minutes. No, not contrary to my opinions. We're not to mark and avoid those that are contrary to my uh, personality, my taste, my opinions, or the opinions of the Christians in my little circle. Okay? No, we're, to, we're to mark and avoid those that cause division defenses contrary to sound 
doctrine. Could be in their words, could be in their behavior, or their practice of Christianity as well. Could be a combination of both, and it probably will be a combination, a combination of both. People, what are we speaking of here in Romans 16? People within the church that cause divisions and offenses. I'm going to give the definition of those words as well. So again, if you're taking notes, this is good to have. Divisions means pretty much what you would think. Disunion or dissension. Disunion or dissension. That's division. These people, by their false doctrines, cause divisions and offenses. What is offenses? That was more interesting. Offenses. Occasions to fall or to stumble. Occasions to sin. A snare. A stumbling block. So now, I have a false teacher, a false prophet, a false evangelist, a false uh, Christian author, whatever, that is causing divisions and offenses. They're actually causing an occasion for someone to sin. It's the definition. Occasion to fall or an occasion to sin. A snare. A stumbling block. This is not simply a brother or sister who gets on your nerves. Brother or sister in, in the church or a Christian that gets on your nerves. This is not a believer who questions the words or teachings of the pastor. This is someone within the church or in the name of the Lord who causes divisions and, and or occasions for stumbling. An occasion to sin. Remember those false prophets? We looked at the test from Deuteronomy 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 13. And one of, the, one of those was they speak something right. Uh, they speak it wrong. It's a false prophet. Okay? Doesn't, doesn't come to pass. They're a false prophet. Or they speak something that happens to come true. And yet they lead you in another way other than the ways that you've known. The solid foundational truths in Christ, what He has spoken over His people and for His people, the way to worship, the way to serve Him, the way to live, okay? And they lead you into another way. Let's go off this way. In the name of the Lord, let's go off this way, okay? So that is an occasion for sin. That is an occasion for stumbling. And it is, it's in this instance, what we're talking about, contrary, which means opposed to or more than the sound healthy doctrines or teachings, he says, which you've learned. Which you've learned. What Paul brought in the first place was sound, healthy doctrine after he got saved. And he was called and sent out. Spent three and a half years, I think, with the Lord in, in the desert. No man teaching him, just the Holy Ghost teaching him, right? And then he had this calling and he went. And he knew what he was talking about and the Lord being with him and ministering through him. But let's look at this where he says that in verse 17 now, I beseech you, Brethren, does that sound familiar? Because in Romans 12, do we hear, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, right? That, that word is important. You just read over it and think he's just saying, well, I ask you to do this. I beseech you, brethren. He's speaking of Christians. Beseech is the strongest form or phraseology that you can use. He's basically saying, I beg you, I'm imploring you. I beseech you. Remember we talked about, I gave the definition this one time, I read it in a, in a, a book, that it, it was the term used for a Roman officer when he was about to lead his Roman soldiers into battle. And it means to draw alongside, pull up beside somebody, and like 
bend their ears, so to speak, and implore them. And, and there are these speeches. We think about a football coach giving a big pep talk before LSU-Alabama game, okay? Uh, this would have been the pep talk of all pep talks. The Roman officer would get in the ears of his soldiers and tell them, men, a lot of y'all are not going to come back today. You may not come back today. I'm beseeching you. Fight with courage. Fight with to the death. Fight for Rome in this case. Fight for your families. There's not a stronger word that can be used. Paul is saying, I beseech you, brethren, mark them. Okay? Mark them and avoid them. I want to give the definition of those two words. Okay? Mark means to take aim, to consider, to regard, to look at, to mark. Okay? Take aim, consider, regard. So we look at that definition of mark. It's not vague, it's not general, it's not just kind of out there. You're looking at somebody and you're looking at their teaching and you're looking at their book and you're looking at their sermon and you're, you're looking at it. Mark them. Take aim. Consider. Regard. Look at. It's very similar in a good context. This is the word mark is used in Psalm 37. Mark the perfect man and behold the upright for the end of that man is peace. Mark him. You got a man in your, in your life or a woman in your life or a person in your life that, that upright and holy and walks with God, consider them. Look at them. Look at their life. The end of that man is going to be peace. That's a good one to follow. We're ultimately following Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? But mark them and note them. Same word that's used here. Avoid means pretty much what you would think to shun, to go out of the way, to decline. Now this instruction to believers is not speaking. I'm going to say this again because I want to say what it means and what it doesn't mean. This is not saying uh, how we're to deal with a lost person. Just somebody that's, that's lost and doesn't know Jesus. I'm to shun and avoid them. Because they, they're an atheist and they don't believe in any God. That's not what it's saying. How would they ever get saved if we didn't at least have that, that relationship with them to bring the Gospel to them? Okay? Uh, so it's not speaking about our, how we're to engage with the lost man. We engage with the world, the lost world, as salt and light, as ambassadors for Christ, okay? To a world that doesn't know Him. They may want nothing to do with it. They reject it. They, they're, they're swine, and we're not to cast our pearls before swine, and we would leave. We follow that Scripture. Don't cast your pearl before swine, and you go on. Or Paul says, deliver, deliver me from unreasonable men. You know, you don't want to... I'm going to go on to somebody that will listen. But th this, this passage in Romans is not speaking about avoiding and sh shunning and marking those just in the world. Alright? There might be other scriptures that deal with that more clearly, but this one is not. This, this, scripture, this passage is not telling the Christian how to deal with a brother or sister in Christ that is struggling in their faith right now. You got somebody you know and they're struggling with prayerlessness. They're struggling with uh, slipping back into a man. They, they came out of alcoholism and they've been saved for five years and they're being tempted and they started drinking again. It happens. Okay? That's not saying how we're to deal with them. Shun them, mark them, avoid them. No, they need our help. We go to them. You that are spiritual, go restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Praying for yourself lest you be tempted. And get prayed up, get ready. 
know that it's God's will and go to such a one. So this is not talking about how a Christian is to deal with a struggling brother who's struggling in their walk with Christ at this particular time. Who hasn't struggled in their walk with Christ at some time? Okay? Not to mark and shun and avoid those. This is not even dealing, I don't believe, in how we're to deal with a brother or sister who has taught something incorrectly. And I want to explain this before you, you jump to a conclusion. If somebody was a new believer and he said, I want you to teach Sunday school. And they're teaching on the millennium or something like we did this morning in Sunday school. And they misspoke something about it. And they didn't know. Well, they shouldn't have been teaching it. Alright? But let's say they were. And they misspoke something. You, Two or three believers get him off to the side afterwards and say, Brother, so excited. How about you're doing it in the Lord? Keep on. Can I, can I explain something to you about what you taught this morning? You, you spoke that the millennium was, I'm just being ridiculous, is only 500 years, and it's going to be a thousand. Oh, and, and they receive it. This, you don't shun and avoid that person. You don't mark and avoid them. You're bringing them under your wing, and you're saying you taught something that was incorrect. Okay? You taught something incorrectly, and... I want through the Word of God to, to show you the right so that you don't make that mistake again. <coughs> now that person can handle it one of two ways. The one who's being corrected. They could buck up and say, who are you to tell me anything? I believe what I said. Okay? I believe God's attracted to sin. I believe that Jesus quit being God. Totally was not God when He was on the earth. Only a man in right relationship with God. I believe that. Now that person you would shun and avoid. They're going to perpetuate it. They, they've proven themselves that they, they're going to perpetuate the false. But somebody that's easily corrected and, and you go to them, have you ever been corrected about before? I've been. It might sting a little bit. The Bible says precious are the wounds of a friend. If they're coming to you in love and they really mean it and they're right, and you can say, I can't argue with you, you're right. You know what we need to do? We ought not argue with them. And I don't argue with God and His Word. We should humble ourselves and say, I'm embarrassed. Okay? I'm ashamed. God, forgive me. Would you forgive me? Thank you so much for coming to me. I promise you, that's not going to come out of my mouth again. I didn't understand it. And thank you for showing me and helping me. And so, you don't shun and avoid that person. You don't mark them and avoid them. They're being corrected. They're receiving that chastisement. They're re receiving the instruction, the rebuke, reproof of the Word of God when it's brought to them in love. But it's absolutely talking about someone that defends their error. I'm deeper than you. You need a new set of biblical glasses. Because this is new. We're going off the map with this doctrine. We're going off the rails in this day. God's looking. You're putting God in a box. God's bigger than His book. It's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And what they mean by that is to minimize the Word of God. I know it's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. But what do they mean by it? They mean to minimize any opposition you would have from the Scriptures against their teaching. And so that's the one that they defend their error as truth and perpetuate it and persist on it 
and slam their fists down and say, I'm just more spiritual than you. You just don't get it. That's the ones that we are to, to shun, to mark, to avoid. Okay? Not the one who humbles themselves before correction. We have examples in the Bible of people that humble themselves and they taught. And, and I know they weren't truly born again, but you got these disciples in Ephesus when Paul got there and they were, they were uh, he thought that they were believers in Jesus Christ. He said he, 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 he found them and thought these are disciples. And after talking to them, he's talked to them about the Holy Ghost and they said, we don't even know what you're talking about, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He said, well, what baptism were you baptized in? We we're baptized in the, about John's <coughs> baptism. What? John's baptism? You, haven't you heard about Jesus? Yeah, we've heard, we've heard about a coming Messiah. Have, have you know that He's already come and died and rose again? No, but we believe. And they were saved, and then they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. What is Paul going to shun and avoid them and mark them? No, they were wrong, and they probably taught things that were wrong. Not wrong, but they taught up until John's baptism. That's the same that uh, Apollos did. And Priscilla and Aquila didn't shun him. They pulled him under their wing and said, Brother, you're a good preacher. You're preaching some great stuff about all the Old Testament and all up through John the Baptist. But do you know that the one that John preached about has come? He has. Yeah, he's come and he's died and he's risen again. Well, amen. He gets saved. And he goes on and preaches the Word. Don't shun and mark and avoid that person. But the one who persists in their error and, and is adamant and is going to argue with the truth and rebel against the truth and persist in it, or to absolutely, according to the Word of God, mark and avoid that one. Because they're carrying on their false doctrine. They stand by it. You know what I'm saying? I said it and I'm standing by it. I said it and I'm standing by it. And they stand by it and perpetuate it to the point where it does just what the Bible says. It causes a fit, a divisions and offenses, occasions to sin among other people. Occasions to stumble, a stumbling block, a snare. It causes occasions for that, divisions uh, and offenses by that to Christ's church. You know what? It's not even my church and your church. We say, come visit my church or whatever. It's the Lord's church. He bought with His own blood. And if I'm bringing offense to His body through my words and not rightly speaking the Word of God and the Word of truth and representing my Lord and Savior and my words and or behavior and saying this is how to live and this is how to preach and this is what you believe, then, then I'm causing divisions. I'm causing offenses, occasions to stumble in Christ's body that He died for, that He purchased with His own blood. We're about to close, but I want to read a couple of Scriptures before we do. If you're taking notes, I'm going to read from Isaiah 44.20 and Isaiah 59.13. He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside. And so we have this false prophet and he's turned aside and he's being used to turn other people aside. Listen to this. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. They caused stumbling blocks for Israel. They knew the law. They had the law. They had real priests and prophets. But the false prophets were speaking deceivable words, uttering falsehoods. They were causing the people to transgress. 
Now, it does not absolve the individual from their responsibility. In other words, God held those that follow the false prophet, God holds them responsible because we ought to know the truth and walk in it. But there's a greater judgment upon the one leading them into their false, through their actions and, and doctrine. So we're about to close, but y'all, I'm going to close with this thought because I, I don't want us to leave here and misapply or misuse this passage. I think it's very important. I think it's very pertinent to the day in which we live, but also th- this passage in Romans that we studied. But we must all be biblical and wise and led by the Holy Spirit in all of this. In other words, learn from the Scriptures. How do I actually put Mark 16, 17, and 18 into practice? How do I do that? Well, first we judge by the Word of God, right? By the rightly divided Word of God. Then what does it say about marking and avoiding them? We need to be biblical. And we can look to examples in the Bible as well. We always have to do what we do in love. Everything in love. Everything. Rebuke is in love. Correction is in love. Everything is in love. It has to be. Because we have that overall guiding principle from the Word of God. But think about this. I could use John. I could use Paul. Um, They did mark some specific people in their lives and in their day. And in their Christian circles. They did mark some specific false teachers by name. But they were causing these divisions and offenses. But you don't see that Paul and John made it their mission in life to go search out the planet for everybody within a church and every statement they made to find the false, to mark them and identify them and shun them. Does that make sense? This is very important. I really pray that y'all get this. We're told what to do. But I believe it's going to be as the Lord brings that person or that false teacher, that circumstance or that situation into our lives. Into our community maybe. Into into our church. That then we we would carry this out. I'm not a heresy hunter, so to speak. Because I have another calling on my life. The upper calling of God in Christ Jesus. To press towards the mark for the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I have a calling uh, of the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I have that calling, and so do you, every believer. We are told along the way that we're going to have to mark and, and avoid those that cause these contrary doctrines and offenses and so forth. They're causing divisions within the body. But I don't roll up my sleeves and say, okay, it's my job. I'm taking off. I'm getting, you know, all my money out of my savings account. I'm going to scour the planet for every false doctrine, false gospel, or everybody, I'm going to, and I'm going to mark them and avoid them. And I think that's not, I think it's way out of balance. I think we do it as God brings the circumstances into our lives. And I do have two more scriptures and one quote that I want to read. So if you have your Bibles, we'll look at 3 John verses 9 through 11. 3 John 9, John says, I wrote unto you, the church. Every word is important. I wrote to the church. But Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among, you, among them, received us not. So there's somebody in the church named Diotrephes. That's really a person's name. It's not a figure of speech. Okay? And, it, and Paul, John's dealing with this person in the church who loved the preeminence. He loved to be the man. Among this church, maybe a little group of churches, 
group of believers. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words. So there was words that he spoke, Diotrephes, that were against John and whoever was traveling with him, maybe the other apostles. And not, let's see, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil has not seen God. So do we see an example here? Somebody being marked by name for their words in the church and their behavior. Yes. Um, in, in Paul's day, in John's day, we see in, the, in the New Testament, we see the Judaizers, which was a group of people. We see the Nicolaitans. We see Jezebel. We see Alexander the coppersmith, which has done Paul much evil. I don't know if that's in the context of the church or not. In the Old Testament, we see Balaam being marked. We see Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, who was one of these false prophets that prophesied falsely and made the horns and said, yeah, Jehoshaphat, you and... Uh, and uh, and hey, Ahab, we're going to prosper. Y'all go fight the Syrians. He was a false prophet that slapped Micaiah on the face when he, when he gave the true prophecy. So some people are named by name, but I'll say this, sometimes it becomes necessary. This is the point, and I'm closing. Sometimes it becomes necessary to mark and avoid those who have proven to be false. Persist in it. It's necessary because God has placed that individual, whoever that false person is, God has placed them in our lives. God has placed them in our church, for example. God has placed them in our circle of churches, maybe. If we had a circle of four or five churches that we go on mission trips with or fellowships with or our youth groups would get together or whatever. Uh, or maybe it's in our community and I'm a pastor of this community to speak up against it, for example. So God will show us, but and He equips us and calls us to do that. But we're not heresy hunters in the sense that all I'm doing is going out and seeking out the false. That's not what we're called to do. I found somebody false I didn't even know. I met them, found out that they were false, now I'm going to shun them and avoid them. But what good is that doing anything? I think it has to do with our, our circle, our Christian circle. Certainly would include our local church. If it's a popular pastor in our country that's traveling around and everybody in our church is starting to read their books and they're false, yes, we would absolutely have the responsibility to deal with that. But it's not, I think there's enough of that just comes to you, <laughs> comes across our paths. When it does, don't be afraid to deal with it. We're going to talk about that more next week about judging and kind of transition out of this series. We're going to talk about judging as, as God would have us to judge. We cannot be afraid or negligent to deal with the false teacher, specifically by name, in our day and in our sphere as God would have us to. So I'm going to read this. you, you got your Bibles, you can read with me. In, in Jude 3 and 4. Jude 3 and 4. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort that you should earnestly contend for the faith. We've talked about that. It means to struggle for earnestly 
which was once delivered unto the saints. Not a new faith, and a new faith, and a new faith. But the faith of Jesus Christ, once delivered to the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an admonition there. You can come. So I'm going to close with a quote. But there's an admonition there. A person denies the Lord Jesus Christ. He says here. And, and they've crept in unawares. And we're to contend for the faith because these, these men have crept in and are contrary to the faith. But they're doing it in the name of Jesus. Okay? What is my responsibility? Earnestly contend for the faith. That will include Mark 16, 17, and 18 at times. It will always include using God's Word as our standard to judge and, and doing whatever we, confrontation we would have to do to do that in love. That would always be a consistent in all of this. And so I want to I close with this quote by Brother Clinton. I, I thought it was very appropriate. So y'all, I'm closing with this quote. Bert Clinton says this, a little paragraph, I'm going to read it. The enemy of, all, enemy of all truth through the use of deceived teachers and preachers has created an atmosphere in the church in which there is a readiness to believe everybody and anybody who talks cleverly, lovingly, and earnestly. I agree with that. I think there's a readiness in the church because of the... Uh, the climate, the church climate that we're in now, people are more willing to believe everybody and anybody who talks cleverly, lovingly, and earnestly. In such an atmosphere, every heretic who tells his story is sure to be believed. And everybody who doubts him is branded as being a narrow-minded heresy hunter who is totally void of love. Don't, don't let that shake you. If you're doing what God's called you to do and you're marking someone and you hate having to do it, but you do it because God's Word admonishes, I beseech you, brethren, to do it. And we do it. And the world calls you, and the church world calls you a grace hater, and a heresy hunter, and a Pharisee, and a legalist. Don't let that stop you. You pray for them as well, and you keep on. You keep on for Jesus' sake. All these things are particular symptoms of our times. They tend to make the assaults of, assaults of false doctrine in our day exceptionally dangerous. In light of what has just been said, I, church, I charge every true minister of Christ to open his eyes to the peril in which the church stands. Controversy is a hated thing, but there are times when it is a positive duty. Peace is an excellent thing, but like gold, it may be bought too cheaply. Unity is a mighty blessing but it is useless if it is bought at the price of truth. I lift my voice in protest against the notion that is being proclaimed by men in high places that unity is more important than sound doctrine and peace more valuable than truth. I say amen. I say amen to that. And these altars are open. And I'm not against everybody. I pray you're not against everybody. There's a lost world out there that needs Jesus. And there's a church world, a lot that stands in confusion. Some just ignorant. Some are defiant. God has to ultimately deal with their hearts and, and, and do what needs to be done. 
so we can be consistent salt and light to the church and to the world. We can speak the truth and love to the church and to the world. And we are to do that. These altars are open. You come. And let's call upon the Lord this morning. Father, we come before You. In Jesus' name, God. Please come and get hold of the Lord this morning. Meet with Him. And God, we call upon You. And Father, we stand humbly before You. I don't feel at all superior to anyone else. I feel thankful and blessed to be in the truth. I want to have a teachable, humble spirit myself. I pray that we'd be a humble people. Not gullible, not foolish, not stupid, but humble and teachable. I pray, God, that You would use us to be salt and light in this hour. Not salt that's lost its savor, not light that's hidden under a bushel. God, we wouldn't compromise You, Your testimony, Your Word, Your truth in order to be at unity or peace with someone who doesn't believe it. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, thank You, Lord.